Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Radio Westeros, Episode 3, A Red, Red Star. Hello and welcome. Thanks for tuning in today, wherever you are. I'm Yoke Boy, talking to you from England, and with me is Lady Guinevere in Boston. Hi there. We have a packed episode for you all to listen to today. Yeah, this is our third episode, and it is dark and full of terrors, because we are looking at Melisandre of Ashai, the Red Woman, Melanie Lot 7. George's most misunderstood character in his own words. And we've prepared readings of The Onion Scene with Davos and the flame reading from Mel's Point of View chapter. There'll be a look at her character, some analysis, and also this episode is full of mysteries and theories. Yeah, we really love mysteries and theories and we hope you do too. We're going to look at a lot of Mel's small mysteries first. Remember when John saw Mel and he thought that she was Egret? How did she do that? We have answers for this and a lot of other tricks we see Mel using. And we also have Yoke Boy's theory about who Mel's parents are, which has been popular with fans. And we're going to talk through this Shara plus Bloodraven equals Mel theory today. So we hope to provoke some thoughts today with a variety of Melisandre theories. And we'll be careful to stick closely to the text and not just crackpot you to death. Yeah, our definition of canon is the books and the author's word. And we think this can be the only way to study these books and make theories. And also today, as ever, we have music from the fandom and all the other small touches to break up the talking a bit and make this a radio experience. So stay with us and enjoy the show. Take them and cast your light upon us, for the night is dark and full of terrors. So let's begin with a brief look at Mal's character. She's a shadow-binding sorceress who arrives at Dragonstone from a shy where she has presumably been studying magic and prophecy. She immediately stands out in her garish red clothing, and she exerts control over Stannis and company quickly, and comes across as a religious fundamentalist with her preachings of relore. Soon we see Stannis becoming weak as a result of Mel's dark magic with shadow babies, and the crown stag on his sigil is seen to be swallowed up by the fiery heart, symbolizing Mel's influence and dominance, which end up going far and beyond Stannis. Yes, she's perceived as quite an evil character sometimes, isn't she? Yes, she is. She'll happily burn innocent people to get what she wants. She's manipulative and full of tricks. However, she also believes that she's trying to save the world from what she perceives as the horror of an endless winter. Mm. Mel seems genuine in her convictions here, doesn't she? 
Yeah, really. When she's with the Night's Watch, for example, she's adamant about the defence of the wall. And is one of the few characters who doesn't seem to be materialistic. And she's also ready to put herself on the front line against the others. Right. In A Dance with Dragons, we actually see her point of view for the first time, which was intriguing, as this strange, otherworldly, often morally repugnant character was shown to have a very human side to her. We learn that she had a long life before she went to a shy, that she's a truly tortured soul who has suffered greatly, a child slave, and we don't know exactly what that entailed, but it might have been horrific for her. This POV shows that there's a lot more to Mel than initially met the eye. George describes her as his most misunderstood character, and we hope to shed some light, at least, as to why that might be. And for a first reading of the episode, we've chosen a passage that really gives us a picture of Mel's outlook and philosophy. In Clash, Davos is ordered to smuggle Mel underneath Storm's End in order for her to birth a shadow assassin. And the sparring between the two characters as they quietly sail along makes a great read. Here's Davos, Mel and the Onion. Silent, Davos tended to his course. The shore was a snarl of rocks, so he was taking them well out across the bay. He would wait for the tide to turn before coming about. Storm's end dwindled behind them, but the red woman seemed unconcerned. Are you a good man, Davos Seaworth? she asked. Would a good man be doing this? I am a man, he said. I am kind to my wife, but I have known other women. I have tried to be a father to my sons, to help them make a place in this world. I have broken laws, but I never felt evil until tonight. I would say my parts are mixed, milady. Good and bad. A grey man, she said, neither white nor black, but partaking of both. Is that what you are, Sir Davos? What if I am? It seems to me that most men are grey. If half an onion is black with rot, it is a rotten onion. A man is good, or he is evil. And a great scene there with Mel and Davos from Clash. Yes, I think their exchange is actually quite amusing. Despite Davos knowing something dark might be about to happen, these two make good foils for each other there, don't they? Yeah, great foils in that scene. And that's perhaps because despite having very different personalities, they do have some common ground. Yeah, right. They're both devoted to Stannis, both single-minded, confident, and sure of what they believe in. This is why they spar well together, and it really makes the scene there. Yeah, it definitely does. And this onion that Mel talks about, it's kind of like a philosophical onion, isn't it? Yes, the onion of philosophy. The half-rotten onion tells us a great deal about Mel's worldview. To say that she's a black and white thinker would be an understatement, I think. Yeah, it would be an understatement. And if we look at the quote, if half an onion is black with rot, it is a rotten onion. A man is good or he is evil. So this ties in with the dualism of her religion. It's a form of extremism in her thinking. But then in A Storm of Swords, it seems like we see that philosophical onion once again. Yes, this time it's Samwell. When Craster's wives brought onions, he seized one eagerly. One side was black with rot but he cut that part off with his dagger and ate the good half raw. Yeah, so again we see the half-rotten onion and notice the phrase black with rot is identical to Mel's onion, showing the link between the two passages. Mel essentially says that a half-rotten onion is completely useless and refuses to acknowledge any shades of grey there. 
Yet later, here we are with Sam, seeing him make good use of a half-rotten onion and eating it. So it seems George has brought into question Mel's philosophy here with a more tangible demonstration, showing something half good can undeniably have positive qualities. Yeah, Mel's black and white thinking is really at odds with how George seems to see people. He's full of shades of grey. He really does this with so many of his characters. It's a seems to be a central part of his character building. Yeah, it does. Uh, I can't remember reading any other book with so many uh, grey characters. Mm -hmm. And obviously, with Davos being the Onion Knight, the comparison is drawn between the Onion and him. Yeah, as a character who seems capable of doing extreme evil, like burning people, for example, <laughs> and seems absolutely genuine in her conviction to save the world from this eternal horror that she thinks is going to happen... <laughs> Isn't Mel quite like this onion she talks against? Yeah, I think she might turn out to be a very great character in this story. Not someone shaded the way Tyrion is, but as someone whose seemingly incompatible good and evil tendencies overlap so as to become indistinguishable. Right, black and white overlapping rather than mixing together. Yeah, exactly. Okay, so Mel joined us as a somewhat unappealing character, didn't she? Yes, certainly. And she's kind of an outsider whose mistakes undermine the true power she clearly does possess. In Dance, we see her embrace the power and meaning of the wall and seems to understand it better than most of the Night's Watch sometimes. She calls it one of the hinges of the world. And she's adamant that it must not fall as she awaits a battle with the others. And being on the front line, it's interesting to note that Mel is perhaps the only character who could withstand one of the other's primary weapons. When we see others, it's described as quite cold in the environment, but there's quite a few hints that they can make it a lot, lot colder when they want to. Oh, that's right. Amel happens to have this nifty internal heating system. She's warm at the wall and she can melt ice at a touch. So cold resistance might come in very handy when the cold mist comes sweeping in. Alongside shadow birthing, magical powers she describes as growing stronger than ever before, and insight into the long night she might have learned in a shy, we might all one day be glad that the Red Woman is at the wall. Yes, it could be. Remember how we were flipped with characters like Jamie, who was a villain, pushed Bran out of the window, and then went on to at least partially redefine himself to the reader? And perhaps George could be about to flip us similarly with Mel, she slowly emerged in the story from someone quite peripheral sometimes to having a point of view chapter introduced in dance. George says that we might get flashbacks of a shy, but also no new POV characters. So if you think about that, it seems that Mel's POV seems guaranteed to continue because she is the only POV who's been to a shy to have these flashbacks. And given what's happened with John at the wall, if he's incapacitated, Mel would be our only eyes there. So if Mel's POV does continue through Winds of Winter, this gives us space for a redemption arc that George might have started in dance by revealing that she was a child slave and has deep and terrible torments. One, nine, two, kilobytes kilo kilo per second. second. Coming from your stereo. Your stereo. Radio. Westeros. So, looking at uh, some of the smaller mysteries that surround Melisandre, we're going to start with her age. 
we can hazard a guess at the approximate age of the Red Woman because John notes that she looks older than Egret, but she's described as younger than Celise. Yes, here's a quote. The Red Woman was all Celise was not, young, full-bodied, and strangely beautiful, with her heart-shaped face, coppery hair, and unearthly red eyes. So, in between Egret and Celise, we would say Mel looks like she's in her late 20s, is that right? I would think so, yep. However, there's several quotes that hint to Mel being far older than this. Oh yeah, like this one. Melisandre had practiced her art for years beyond count. And another one from Dance. They need never know how difficult it had been or how much it had cost her. That was a lesson Melisandre had learned long before a shy. Practicing magic, years beyond count. And we can guess she spent a good amount of time studying in a shy. And she talks of times long before that. So Melisandre must be a lot older than she appears, this late 20s that we're guessing. Yeah, no, she must be significantly older than that. So next, let's look at her use of magic. There seems to be an element of charlatanism in her approach sometimes, which she admits to, to herself at least. Like here, where she thinks she should soon have no more need of the feeble tricks of alchemists and pyromancers. And then she also confesses to John that she misreads the flames sometimes. That vision was a true one. It was my reading that was false. I am as mortal as you, John Snow. All mortals err. I think we can agree that with the shadow birth, that was the real deal. No charlatanism there. And also with the glamour casting that we see. She does actually have legitimate, strong, magical powers, which seem to be growing at the wall. And there's clues that she's using more subtle magic through the books. Yes, we have a nice quote here about her magics. The carved chest that she had brought across the narrow sea was more than three quarters empty now. And while Melisandre had the knowledge to make more powders, she lacked many rare ingredients. My spells should suffice. She was stronger at the wall, stronger even than in a shy. Her every word and gesture was more potent, and she could do things that she had never done before. So early on in that quote, we learn that she has got a chest full of magical powders, and she's obviously been using some because the chest is becoming empty now. Right. So she says she'll use spells instead. And so it's the spells and powders that are the two things that we're going to look for now. First, let's look at Ghost. In A Dance of Dragons, Mel somehow makes Ghost side with her over John, which is very strange. She calls the direwolf's name and then Ghost goes to her and doesn't seem to care for John anymore. Yes, here it is. Ghost, he called to me. The direwolf looked at him as if he were a stranger John frowned in disbelief. That's queer. That is very queer, isn't it? There's definitely something up there. Unheard of. Yeah, so there might be two things going on on here, we think. Uh, First of all, when Mel calls Ghost's name, it says... Ghost. Melisandre made the word a song. And we know spells can take the form of songs. We saw it with Miriam Asder... And here Mel says ghost and makes the word a song. And that's when he goes to her. 
Uh, I do have to give credit to a poster called Roosman for this observation in one of my threads. I thought it was a good one. Yes, great catch there. Well done, Roosman. But there might be more to it. When Ghost does go to Mel after she makes the word a song, it says, he stalked about her in a circle, sniffing. Uh, she then holds out her hand and it says, Ghost smelled it and then shoved his nose against her fingers. So perhaps Mel is using a voice spell to attract ghosts and maybe using a scent to keep him mesmerised that was perhaps on her fingers. That's why he's sniffing her fingers. Uh-huh. Yeah, that's interesting. She does have those powders and we can assume that some of them might create scents, which we think she uses again later. But let's look at some more voice tricks first. Okay, another example of voice magic. This time is very clear, and it's with Mance and John. Yes, here it is. Melisandre touched the ruby at her neck and spoke a word. The sound echoed queerly from the corners of the room and twisted like a worm inside their ears. The wildling heard one word, the crow another. Neither was the word that left her lips. So this is great. Mel making John and Mance hear two different things. And it wasn't even the word that she spoke. That's a very handy trick. And it proves that she uses her voice for magic. Yes, it does. We might also see some of her vocal tricks when she preaches. She sometimes gives very impassioned, strong, religious, political speeches about R'hllor. Remember, she's converted a lot of people to a cause, hasn't she? Yes, she has. And she did that single-handedly. And perhaps a few tricks have been used along the way. Uh, To give you an example, in A Dance with Dragons, we have this. Beneath the weeping wall, Lady Melisandre raised her pale white hands. We all must choose, she proclaimed. Man or woman, young or old, lord or peasant, our choices are the same. Her voice made Jon Snow think of anise and nutmeg and cloves. Yeah, so several times in the books, it says that Mel's voice can be strange. It's said to have a musical quality to it sometimes. And here at a Rulor rally, she's trying to convert people. Her voice makes John think of anise, nutmeg and cloves. Yeah, it might just be her exotic accent. But given the situation and what we know of Mel's tricks... We think this could be a hint of some kind of persuasive spell in her voice. Again, it's very sensory, tastes and smells, and using her voice yet again, we think this could be one of the ways she gains subtle influence over people to get what she wants. And it's not the only time John gets strange thoughts linked to a sensory experience. When Samwell notices that she even smells red, John immediately gets nostalgic thoughts, for example. So it seems like she has something going on here. Yes, there does seem to be something going on there. Next up, this is a very strange moment from A Dance with Dragons. It has some similarities with the ghost trick that we talked about earlier, but in some ways it's like the next level. We see John completely confuse Melisandre for Egret. Here's the passage. Someone was behind him, he realized suddenly, someone who smelled warm as a summer day. When he turned, he saw Egret. She stood beneath the scorched stones of the Lord Commander's tower, cloaked in darkness and in memory. The light of the moon was in her hair, her red hair kissed by fire. When he saw that, John's heart leapt into his mouth. Egret, he said, Lord Snow. The voice was Melisandre's. Surprise made him recoil from her, Lady Melisandre. 
He took a step backwards. I mistook you for someone else. At night all robes are gray, yet suddenly hers were red. He did not understand how he could have taken her for Egret. So it's very strange what's going on here. John is completely and utterly bamboozled. And again, notice that smell is mentioned early on in that quote. Mm -hmm. right. So lots of people think this is a glamour trick, Mel changing her appearance. But it really doesn't seem like Mel just kind of changed her face like the faceless men would. The confusion seems to be more within John's mind rather than him witnessing a drastic change like that. Yes, and if we go back to the moment just before he notices Mel behind him, there might be a clue to the source of his confusion. It says, In the shadow of the wall, the dire wolf brushed up against his fingers. For half a heartbeat, the night came alive with a thousand smells. So just for a split second, John smelled a thousand smells, and that's when Mel became eager to him. Once again, scents are involved. Of course, Mel is trying to slowly seduce John in one way or another. She makes it clear she wants some um, shadow babies, doesn't she? <laughs> yes. Well, and that's perhaps why Mel tricks him into thinking of his ex-lover, Egret, here. When Mel's powders are revealed, it says that one of them can make a smoke for lust. And it's our guess that that's what's going on here. Uh, that's the night coming alive with a thousand smells. This is a, a result of one of Mel's powders. Yeah. So overall, her use of voice and powders or scents seems to be a big part of her more subtle use of magic. And perhaps what she was referring to when she mentioned her use of tricks. Uh, another example of a more obvious magic that she uses is seen in Dance with Dragons with glamours. Glamours are a trick of the light and change the appearance of a person or object. And with Mel, it seems she uses her ruby for this. She did it with Stannis' Lightbringer, as Meister Eamon notes, and also with Mance and Rattleshirt. In both cases, the appearance was really convincing, but still slightly unstable. The sword shimmers strangely, for instance, and Mance's rattleshirt changes height. Yes, we learn from Mel that bones remember. They're a great way to make a strong glamour. When John spars with Mance, disguised as rattleshirt, John orders the bones to be taken off him and be replaced with real armour. Mance then changes height right at that moment, as the bones were making the glamour strong. So without the bones, the glamour is weakened, as we see here. Emmett, find some armour for him. I want him in steel, not old bones. Once clad in mail and plate, the Lord of Bones seemed to stand a little straighter. He seemed taller, too, his shoulders thicker and more powerful than John would have thought. Right, so as soon as the bones come off, Mance basically becomes more like Mance, a little bit taller, and his uh, shoulders look a bit more powerful. So, that, so that's what's happening there. Yeah, right. And that brings us on to another potential glamour that Mel's using. Is Mel glamouring her own appearance? Well, this might seem very likely after reading about glamours in A Dance with Dragons, given she is wearing that prominent ruby around her neck. However, we're slightly unsure about what's going on. Uh, Mel would be wearing a glamour to disguise her age, presumably, to look younger than she is, more seductive, etc. Well, glamours only change appearance. They don't change physiology. 
So let's say that Mel's an old woman, a um, hundred years, for example, hundred years old. She is seen riding horses well. Uh, she has a sexual relationship with Stannis that we know from A Dance with Dragons goes beyond the shadow birth. A glamour would not enable her to do these things. So she must be using another form of magic to keep herself physiologically young. She might be using a glamour as well, for example, to cover up slave tattoos or something like that. But it doesn't seem like she needs this glamour to look younger and change her appearance in that way. She has got the movement and physiology of a young woman without the glamour. Right. And Mel's appearance has just too much in common with a certain two people, we think, to just be pulled out of nowhere, which we'll get to shortly. But if she isn't wearing a glamour, or at least not changing her appearance radically, what would the ruby necklace be for? Well, we've discussed this, and this is what we think. The first time we see the necklace described is in Clash. Around her throat was a red gold choker, tighter than any maester's chain, ornamented with a single great ruby. So I think the key words here are tighter than a maester's chain. This seems to signify servitude, doesn't it? Yes, servitude, it does seem to. She never takes off the chain, and we learn in Dance with Dragons that you can use rubies to bind people to your will. Mel puts the ruby on Mance and says, So long as he wears the gem, he's bound to me, blood and soul. So Mance is serving Mel now, and he's bound to her will as long as he's wearing that ruby. This brings about a really interesting question. Is Mel bound to someone else's will? Is that why she's wearing this ruby necklace tighter than any maester's chain? Well, learning that Mance is bound to her is quite interesting, as she uses the same word to describe her relationship with an unnamed Red Temple. Yeah, it says she's bound for life to the Great Red Temple. So, use of the word bound again. And remember, Mel is on her own looking for Azor High in Westeros. If she's bound for life to somewhere, it would make sense that she's somehow under their control. And that's our look at Mel's use of magic and smaller related mysteries. And now here's a message from today's sponsors. This episode of Radio Westeros brought to you by a shy shadowbinding academy in the Shadowlands. At Shy Shadowbinding Academy, you will learn about the shadowy servants of light, including how to bind them to your will, as well as the best techniques for conceiving and delivering shadow babies. Upon graduation, we guarantee you will be qualified to send dark assassins forth into the world from an orifice of your choosing. Contact us via Raven at our offices in King's Landing for admission requirements. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. 
Flexibility is great. That's why there's yoga. Flexibility for your insurance coverage is great too. That's why there's United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, United Healthcare Insurance Plans offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. One of these plans may be right for you if you're, say, between jobs, coming off your parents' plan, turning a side hustle into a full hustle, or even missed open enrollment. Want more flexibility? Find out more about United Healthcare Insurance Plans at uh1.com. So, Lady Gwyn, shadow babies from any orifice, dark magic, doesn't Radio Westeros have any standards? <laughs> no, we ought to be a bit more selective who advertises here, I think. I tried to turn her down, but she made her word a song, and the night came alive with a thousand smells, and I was mesmerized. Right. <laughs> so, let's move on and talk about perhaps the greatest Melisandre mystery of them all, who the Red Woman actually is. Okay, and I think the best place to start would be her description, because as far back as the golden hair and Joffrey, George does like to put some clues in these descriptions. So the first time we see her is through the eyes of Maester Cresson. Yes, right. All back in Clash, he describes her as slender she was, graceful, taller than most knights, with full breasts and narrow waist and a heart-shaped face. Men's eyes that once found her did not quickly look away, not even a maester's eyes. Many called her beautiful, and of course also later on her skin is described as pale as cream. Okay, and it's well documented about her strange red eyes. So the way she's described here with the white skin might be a hint that she's an albino, save the red hair which seems to be an unnatural, weird red tone. And a really standout striking feature of hers there is this heart-shaped face. This is really rare in the books. I mean, there must be around 2,000 characters in this story, and including Mel, only four with this heart-shaped face. So her appearance might give us some clues as to who she really is. And Yoke Boy has a great theory on her identity, called Shera plus Blood Raven equals Mel. And this theory was really popular on Westeros.org and as well on Reddit, where it came in second best theory of the year in 2013. For starters, let's talk about who Shera Seastar is, because she's barely mentioned in the books. She is one of the four named great bastards of Aegon IV called the Unworthy. The other three being Bloodraven, Bittersteel, and Damon Blackfire, all of whom are emerging as very important to the story. And, of course, for more background on them, you should read the Duncan Egg stories if you haven't done so. What we know about Shara is that she had a sexual relationship with Bloodraven. Beyond that... What happened to her is left as a mystery. So feeling is there might be some upcoming significance with Shara. Although Shara was seldom mentioned in the books or even in Duncan Egg for that matter, uh, George has given us a very detailed description of her in an SSM interview. And it's got a lot in common with Mel, hasn't it? Yes, it does. Here she's described as... The greatest beauty of her age, a slender and elegant woman, slim of waist, full of breast. She had a heart-shaped face. Right, so if we 
match up the two descriptions, the, the, the one of Mel and the one of Shiera? What do they have in common? Well, the similarities are pretty striking. They're both described as slender, beautiful, graceful or elegant. Um, one is full of breast and one has full breasts. One is slim of waist, one has a narrow waist. Um, and both of them, of course, have those very rare heart-shaped faces. Okay, so Melanchiera clearly look very, very similar. If you look at the descriptions side by side, the wording is so similar, they almost seem like the same person. And quite a few people have wondered with these similarities if Shero was actually Mel. But this can't be possible because in A Dance with Dragons we see Mel's POV. And she has memories of a childhood and being a slave and being called Melanie. Lot 7, if you remember that. So she can't be Shiera, but it seems she could be related, right? Yes, right. Well, aside from all the similarities between Mel and Shiera, there are also clear differences. Mel is described as taller than most knights, and Shiera is never described as being tall. Mm -hmm. uh, Mel's got these red eyes. Shiera had distinctive mismatched eyes mm -hmm. and uh, Mel's kind of albino white skin so the height the red eyes and the and the white skin don't match Shiera but all three of these do match Bloodraven that's right yeah George says that Bloodraven is tall in an SSM um, so uh, just short of six feet that would fit Mel being described as taller than most knights so similarity in height there. Uh, Mel's skin is white, pale as cream, while Bloodraven has milk-white skin. So cream and milk together yeah. there. Yeah. Cream and milk, they're related, aren't they? Yeah, for sure. That's uh, interesting. Yeah, and of course, the big one, um, Mel and Bloodraven are the only two human characters with red eyes. That's right. The, the only other one to consider is the Ghost of High Heart, but she seems to have some kind of uh, children of the forest connection, but aside from those three, there's yeah. uh, there's nobody right. else. Right. And also, there's a similarity in their clothing. Bloodraven wears scarlet, and he's described as frequently going about cloaked and hooded. And look here at Mal at the parley with Renly and Clash. She's a woman garbed all in reds, face shadowed within the deep hood of her scarlet cloak. Hooded scarlet cloaks for both then, so... There we go, yes. They do have similarities in their clothing and more possible clues. George let us know that Bloodraven wore the hooded cloaks because his albino skin was sensitive to light, and perhaps Mal could be doing the same when we see her at the Parley, if she's an albino too. And Mel has similarities with Shara, too, with regard to clothing, more specifically jewellery. Shara wore a prominent necklace of emerald, sapphires, and silver, alternating. Yeah, and of course, the other prominent necklace wearer in this story is Mel, just with a different jewel here. And we know Shara wouldn't wear gold, and Mel does wear a gold choker, so more indication that they are similar people, but not the same person. Interestingly, in dance, we learned that Mel has powders, and she likes to turn her flames specifically green, blue, and silver, which are Shara's colors, her necklace, her eyes. So maybe a nice nod there. 
So, so far just on appearance, and we'll go into personalities in a minute, but on appearance we have skin, eyes, height, figure, face, breasts, beauty, elegance, and even clothing and jewellery can be attributed to either Shearer or Bloodraven of Mel. That seems more than a coincidence. Yes, I think it's pretty compelling that... Um you know, almost all of her physical attributes could come from one or the other of those people as her parents. Yeah, of two people who are known to have a sexual mm-hmm. relationship. That's right, yeah. Okay, and the only thing about her appearance which can't be attributed to Bloodraven or Shearer is her unusual red hair. And hair is obviously the easiest thing to change about an appearance, as we've already seen with Sansa. And George gave us a really interesting uh, SSM. Yes, he says, Westeros has better technology with dyes than medieval Europe did. That's why they're able to create consistent colors such as scarlet, crimson, or burgundy, rather than just red. So... Mel has this unusual red hue in her hair and George, kind of out of nowhere in this Mm -hmm. SSM, is not really part of any greater observation, lets us know that red dye is very advanced and we can get strange colours from it. Yeah, that seems... George never says anything without purpose, come on. And that that was the only thing missing from the appearance. So so now you could say that everything everything is covered about Mel's appearance. Right. Her natural hair could be albino white. Yes, I think so. So next we can move on to the personalities and aptitudes and see if there's similarities there. So with regard to personality and aptitude, Mel using magic to disguise her real age, links in with Shira and her grandmother, Sereni, who were both said to use the dark arts to appear younger and possibly live longer. No doubt there might be some rumor involved here, but it could be a link or a hint, nonetheless. Mel's interest or aptitude with magic generally might be a likening of personality with Shira and Sereni. It's a kind of family trait, if you will. Yeah, and in this theory, the other part of the family is Bloodraven, who also happens to be very good with magic, as we know. And Bloodraven and Mel are the only two people we know of that have cast glamours using gems. Right, Bloodraven as Maynard Plum in Dunkin' Egg. And Mel with the Mance and Rattleshirt swap. That's right. Bloodraven was known as a sorcerer. Yes, the first time Bloodraven is mentioned, Dunk calls him the King Sorcerer. And of course, in A Storm of Swords, Gren calls Melisandre the King's Sorceress. So the King Sorcerer and the King Sorceress. There we go. Another similarity, and both are called Three-Eyed. You've got Bloodraven, the Three-Eyed Crow. That's right. And Mel is described as three-eyed by John when he notes her ruby gleamed, a third eye glowing brighter than the others. So maybe some small hints there. Yeah. And of course, Blood Raven uh, doesn't seem to eat and neither does Mel. Another similarity between the two. It's interesting that Mel and Mormont's Raven, 
who we think's been skin changed by Blood Raven. Right. Yes. They haven't actually come into contact yet because this is a this would be a father and daughter scenario. So they haven't oh been on page as far right. as we know. Yeah. But there's twice when Mel's mentioned around the Raven, and both times he squawks blood. Hmm. Interesting. And blood. Doesn't always mean blood, does it? It means relative. Oh, frequently in stories. Frequently in the books. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so that's interesting. And the second time he does say blood when Mel's mentioned, it's really out of the blue. It doesn't seem to attribute to anything, so, which I found quite strange. Mm-hmm. And then we have Mel seeing Blood Raven in the flames, this wooden face she sees. Right. It seems to trigger her bleeding. It caused some, some kind of overwhelming agony ecstasy, it's described as, some kind of bizarre excitement in her. Yeah. And she wonders if he's the enemy, and her enemy is the great other, or the one that can't be named. Mm-hmm. So this is an interesting dynamic, if this theory is true, because she thinks her father is the enemy. Yes. That would be interesting on many levels. In addition to the father-daughter dynamic, you could have the old gods versus R'hllor, as they're both seem to be representative of, you know, one of the old gods. Yeah, uh, Mel is like the embodiment of uh, R'hllor, isn't she? Right. And Bloodraven is the embodiment of the old gods yeah. and the weirwoods. Yep. And also, this would provide a kind of tie back to the Duncan Egg era which is appealing on a literary level to yeah. bridge the two stories really regarding Mel's age mm-hmm. I've already said that she seems to be a lot older than she's described I don't think that's going to be in question yes and this theory gives a literary purpose for writing Mel to be very old if Mel is secretly older than she looks what's the purpose why has George done this Well, it makes sense that it would be to have some kind of backstory that links up to the older Westeros somehow. I don't think he'd write Mal as old and miss some kind of storytelling opportunity. And we've wondered why George has presented this information about Shiera in SSM form in interviews rather than in the books. Yeah, you know, I'm thinking that maybe he fell behind the curve a bit in you know, realized he needed to get more information on her out there because she's going to be significant or her identity will be significant in the future. Okay, so practicalities. What must have happened to uh, Shara in order for Melisandre to be her daughter? Well, the first thing we know about Mel is she's in the East in a great temple, which must be Volantis or Lys. And she's a child slave, so Shara must have headed east and been captured, is, is my best guess. Right. And other people are captured. I mean, we see Jorah and Tyrion and Penny uh, being captured and sold as slaves. It does. It happens in the story, and it's completely plausible. I, I would guess that Shara would have headed to Lys because... We're told her mother, Serene, is from Lys, so she's got family there. That seems quite logical. There's a great temple there, so that's maybe where she was sold to Mm -hmm. with her daughter. She wouldn't have wanted Ransom to reveal herself because she has king's blood, and 
her daughter would have king's blood and we know what red temples do to people with king's blood yeah keep that a secret and the only time she's mentioned in the five books george lets us know that you know she was amidst trouble Right. Uh, he tells us that Bittersteel and Bloodraven both loved Shera, Seastar, and the Seven Kingdoms bled. So she was amidst problems. We know Bloodraven was imprisoned by Makar at one point, don't we? Yes, Makar had him in the black cells of the Red Keep for uh, many years. So it seems that Shera had plenty of reasons to flee at that time in the turbulent Blackfire era, especially if she was with child, or she just given birth to a daughter. If Shara is Mal's mother, it seems likely Bloodraven would be the father. And fleeing with Bloodraven's love child really makes a lot of sense, especially at that time when he was imprisoned and out of favor. So we know Shara and Bloodraven shared a bed, and that he was her most ardent admirer. Is it so unlikely they made a child together? Perhaps the icing on the cake for me here is that we know of just two females in Bloodraven's family the Blackwoods. Both have names beginning with Mel. Bloodraven's mother was called Melissa, and we know of another who married into the Starks called Melantha. So it does seem Mel is a name tied to the Blackwoods. Melanie and then Melisandra seem like fitting names for Bloodraven's daughter, and yet another hint to a connection. Mm, there's just so many connections here between Shara, Bloodraven, and Mel. It's beyond the usual or coincidence, we think. Yeah, everything just seems to jigsaw together so well. The appearances of the proposed parents combining in their child, their personalities doing the same, the storytelling potential, and a lot more. So, that's the gist of the Shara plus Bloodraven equals Mel theory. I love it, and I think it's the character mystery with the most amount of convincing evidence outside of RLJ. You just don't see theories fitting like this very often. Yeah, and we hope you enjoyed that one. Thanks to anyone that provided inputs in the threads on the forums. And that's the theory, S plus B equals M. Warmth calls to warmth, Jon Snow. Her eyes were two red stars shining in the dark. At her throat, her ruby gleamed, a third eye glowing brighter than the others. Warmth calls to warmth, Jon Snow. Her eyes were two red stars. So, after all that evidence, we're not quite done with the Shiera plus Bloodraven equals Mel theory just yet. I really wanted to separate the issue of Mel's parentage from what we're about to discuss, so this is more like an add-on, really. In A Storm of Swords, Melisandre reveals knowledge of a prophecy regarding a red star bleeding, marking the second coming of Azor Ahai. Yes, here it is. She says, It is written in prophecy as well. When the red star bleeds and the darkness gathers, Azor Ahai shall be born again. So, it sounds like there will be a red star bleeding, heralding the rebirth of Azor Ahai. And if Mel is Shiera Seastar's daughter, there might be an outsider candidate for the red star bleeding, in Mel herself. Mel could be the red star bleeding. And we'll explain why. Yes, so Melisandre is heavily associated with the color red. You have her eyes, her clothes, her hair, even her god. She's called the Red Woman. She is the embodiment of red. And Samuel even says she smells of red. Right, right. So I think the red part of Red Star Bleeding is covered. Yeah, I'd say so. So now let's look at the star. Regarding Bloodraven's relationship with Shiera, George told us... 
Her most ardent admirer was her half-brother, Bloodraven, who proposed marriage to her half a hundred times. Shiera gave him her bed, but never her hand. So George is letting us know in these brief interviews that although Bloodraven and Shiera had a sexual relationship, they did not marry. Therefore, Melisandre would likely pick up her mother's name and be called Melanie Seastar. And Seastar is such an unusual and standout name, and George uses it interchangeably with Star of the Sea, so Mel could be considered a star in this scenario. So now we have Mel as a potential red star so far, so let's look at the bleeding in the red star bleeding. In A Dance with Dragons and her POV chapter, we're shown that in a certain excitement, Mel spontaneously bleeds. So you can imagine if Azora High was about to be reborn, maybe the most magical event in the planet's history prophesied for thousands of years, with Bloodraven was around, or whatever the trigger is for her bleeding. She would be feeling the same overwhelming excitement and perhaps spontaneously bleed again. And she would, at that moment, be a red star bleeding. And Mel spontaneously bleeding in A Dance with Dragons would have served a purpose by preventing a deus ex machina if she was to bleed upon the rebirth of Ezor Ahai. Yes, that's it. This unusual bleeding sequence, which seemed a little out of place from her POV, would now have a literary purpose in avoiding a deus ex machina later on. Okay, that's the idea for Mel as the red star bleeding. So let's look at the text with this in mind to see if there's any clues in support. Yeah, there are two occasions on which Mel and her necklace are described as being like a red star. This could be a further hint, and interesting to note that no other character is given this red star association. Here are her eyes being described as two red stars shining in the dark. And then her necklace, we have Melisandre's ruby glowed like a red star at her throat. Yeah, that is interesting, given that Mel is the only person given this red star association in the books. Right. And there's also an instance of Shiera, who we're saying could be a mother, being sneakily linked to the red star bleeding, courtesy of the Dothraki's word for bleeding star. Yeah, that's right. The Dothraki actually named the comet Shiarek Kia, which is translated as the bleeding star. So maybe an association via her mother. Yeah, so Shiarakia, and it's actually spelt Shiera with a K on the end, the same as same as Shiera Sea Star. Right. Uh, like you say, perhaps an association via her mother. So that's some textual support for Mel being the Red Star bleeding. And remember, it was Mel who first introduced the reader to the prophecy. And with Mel sometimes unable to see things right in front of her, this would be a surprising and satisfying solution for the reader. Yeah, and keep in mind that prophecies are often like puzzles as a literary device, and they're almost always non-literal. Yeah, we've dug up an interview with George regarding prophecies, and he says, Prophecies are a double-edged sword. They can add depth and interest to a book, but you don't want to be too literal or too easy. It's clear in this interview that's how he views prophecies as a literary device. And he also gives a historical example of a prophecy coming true in a non-literal and surprising way. He finishes by saying, that's the way prophecies come true in unexpected ways. Right, and given that the Azora High prophecies are probably the most central prophecies in the books, 
Whoever you have down for Azora High, we think it's a good idea to perhaps expect the unexpected here. I personally can't wait to see what George will do with the Azora High prophecies, but I think there'll be a big payoff for the reader. Yes, one of the many parts of Winds of Winter that we're really looking forward to. And speaking of waiting for Winds of Winter, it's time for a song. Right, and we couldn't find a Melisandre song from the fandom, unfortunately. And I didn't want to play Krista Berg's Lady in Red. Ugh. I wouldn't do that to you. <laughs> so we have one about respecting George, as we all wait for him to finish the next book. So here's John Anilio with George R.R. R. Martin is Not Your Bitch. John Anelio with a song based on Neil Gaiman's response to an email about George writing too slowly. Yeah, and in case you don't know the story, writer Neil Gaiman took issue on his blog with someone's complaints about George and replied with the memorable line, George R.R. R. Martin is not your bitch. And he also said, people are not machines, writers and artists aren't machines. Well, I definitely agree with Neil, although he did miss out podcasters. Uh, George is not your bitch and podcasters are nobody's bitch either. Just remember that. Although occasionally Yoke Boy is my bitch. Hey, <laughs> don't tell them that. Oh, it's not true. Anyway. <laughs> nobody's bitch. <laughs> nobody's bitch. Anyway, Neil Gaiman is one of my all-time favorite writers, so I really love what he wrote there. 
And so, John and Alio, more music from the fandom that we're really proud to showcase here. It's a great song, very amusing, and I love the synths at the end too. And you can find John and Alio at Bandcamp. And John also co-hosts a really good podcast called Functional Nerds. It's about sci-fi, geeky gadgets, and so on. So check out the Functional Nerds podcast. We recommend it. Okay, now we're going to set the scene for a second and final reading of the episode, which is an excerpt from Mel's POV in Dance, when she looks into her flames. Until this point, Mel had been quite an unsympathetic character and also full of mysteries. So a prospect of a Mel POV midway through Dance was always going to be intriguing and the chapter did not disappoint. We learn that Mel was a child slave in the distant past and she's clearly very haunted by what went on back then. It's really quite sad. This is the beginning of what sounds like a very interesting backstory and it really adds pathos and a human depth to her character that had previously been absent. Despite being very calm, confident and powerful when we see her from the outside, Internally, there is a definite fragility in Mel, hidden frailties that she conceals very well. We see an extended flame reading, which is absolutely packed with mysteries here. Many interesting visions are presented quickly in succession. We'll be analysing a few of these visions and offering some new explanations for them that we've come up with. The chapter begins in Melisandre's chambers as she looks into her hearth. Still associating Stannis with Azor High. Mel looks into her flames and thinks, Show me your king, your instrument. And here's an excerpt from this quite amazing sequence. A face took shape within the hearth. Stannis, she thought, for just a moment. But no, these were not his features. A wooden face, corpse white. Was this the enemy? A thousand red eyes floated in the rising flames. He sees me. Beside him, a boy with a wolf's face threw back his head howled. The red priestess shuddered. Blood trickled down her thigh, black and smoking. The fire was inside her, an agony, an ecstasy, filling her, searing her, transforming her. Shimmers of heat traced patterns on her skin, insistent as a lover's hand. Strange voices called to her from days long past. Melanie, she heard a woman cry. A man's voice called, Lot Seven? She was weeping, and her tears were flame, and still she drank it in. Snowflakes swirled from a dark sky, and ashes rose to meet them, the gray and the white whirling around each other as flaming arrows arced above a wooden wall, and dead things shambled silent through the cold beneath a great gray cliff where fires burned inside a hundred caves. Then the wind rose, and the white mist came sweeping in, impossibly cold, and one by one the fires went out. Afterward, only the skulls remained. Death, thought Melisandre. The skulls are death. So, hope you enjoyed that reading. A really wonderful sequence. Mel and the flames. And we added some flame sounds there to add to the atmosphere and try and put you in the moment. Hope you like these readings as much as we enjoy making them. Yeah, really great fun making those. And now, repeatedly, we see Mel misreading the flames. Often she's quite close to being correct, 
but doesn't quite get it right. She's almost tricked by the flames. Right, like with Renly's ghost. Yeah, exactly. She sees a vision of Renly after his death in his armour smashing Stannis and thinks that it's a morrow never made. And so you can understand where Mel's coming from here. It seems like the right explanation. But then Willis shows up at Blackwater and smashes Stannis, wearing Renly's armour. Yeah, so Mel has misread the flames. They are tricksy. And in A Dance with Dragons, this theme continues to the point that she admits to John that she struggles with her interpretation and that she's not at fault. As a literary device, the flames provide a great chance to trick and surprise not only Mel, but the reader too. So, with this being the biggest flame reading in the books, there's lots and lots of potential for George's trickery here. With Mel having already made her own interpretations, we're going to pick out a couple we think have got the potential to surprise us. Okay, let's start at the beginning. She saw the eyeless faces again, staring out at her from Socket's weeping blood. So this seems like the weeper's victims. He was the wildling who cuts the eyes out of his enemies, and so the bleeding faces seem like a good fit. These would be the eyeless faces of the nine missing Night's Watchmen. And on another occasion, Mel sees the same vision. Nine crows. I have seen their pale, dead faces in my flames. Empty sockets, weeping blood. So Mel assumes it's the nine missing Night's Watchmen. It seems to fit. However, remember the Weirwood Grove near the wall where John took his Night's Watch vows and game? Well, we have this description. The wide, smooth trunks were bone pale, and nine faces stared inward. The dried sap that crusted in their eyes was red and hard as ruby. So here you have nine pale faces staring with blood coming from the eyes. What Mel is seeing in the flames, if you look at the two descriptions here, is actually a perfect match for the Weirwood Grove by the wall, a place not too far from Mel. Yeah, nine sets of bleeding eyes at the Night's Watch Weirwood Grove. This seems very, very suspicious. We really don't think this is a coincidence, given the way that the quotes are worded. It would make the Weeper's victims a red herring, as in George has written that to misdirect us, and that it is in fact the Weirwood Grove that, for some reason, is important to Mel. It's interesting, if this is a red herring, how well George has crafted it and disguised the Weirwood Grove, which we've only seen very briefly. Well, if the Weeper's victims is the red herring, he's obviously made it fit as best as he can to trick the reader effectively. Later we learned that three of the rangers have died, and this, in Mel's mind, confirms that it was the Weeper's victims she was seeing, as she saw three faces dead in her flames. But we're also told that the Queen's men have obtained Weirwood from somewhere, to burn and also for Mance's cage and the weirwood is confirmed as coming from the Haunted Forest. Right, and that's where this Night's Watch weirwood grove is, the Haunted Forest, and weirwoods are being destroyed there. It's our guess that three weirwoods have died there, fitting the three dead eyeless faces Mel was seeing. Yes, so if we're correct about this, and it's worth mentioning that she's having these visions of the nine eyeless faces repeatedly, that this is something important to Mel, And why would this particular spot be so important to her? Why does it warrant this literary disguise that George might have given it? Well, we suggest this Weirwood Grove could be a candidate for John's rebirth spot if he's going to undergo a resurrection of some sort. Seems like a good place, doesn't it? 
Yeah, it really does seem like a good place. It's, it's the place where John took his Night's Watch vows, for one thing. Uh, the Weirwoods mean that Bran and Bloodraven might be involved. And if Mel was there, then you've got the Old Gods and R'hllor kind of working together. Yeah, it's religious, it'd be relatives there, it's sacred to the Night's Watch order. It does seem like the place for some kind of a miracle. And of course, there's the added possibility that John could awake as Azor Ahai. Mm, yeah, that's true. But regardless, we recommend keeping a very close eye on that weirwood grove in the Winds of Winter. We get the feeling something might be about to happen there at that spot. Okay, so now we're going to look at another part of this flame reading. The girl, I must find the girl again, the great girl on the dying horse. And another time Mel sees this girl, she had seen the girl only once, a girl as grey as ash, and even as I watched, she crumbled and blew away. Right, so Mel really, really wants to impress John. And she tries to look for Arya in her flames. She's convinced this vision is her, but it turns out to be Alice Karstark, or at least it seems to. Again, we want to offer a fresh alternative explanation for you to think about. So the girl is described as grey, and we're finding it hard to attribute grey to Alice Karstark when she arrives. When John hears of the girl arriving, he makes the assumption that this is the grey girl before even seeing her. Yet nowhere in her description is she wearing grey. So we've been looking at fake Arya, Jane Poole. She's now headed to the wall on a horse, and Justin Massey pretty much spells out that the horses are dying. So there's a good chance she'll arrive at the wall on a dying horse. And there's obviously parallels between Alice and Jane's journey to the wall. Yeah, and we've talked about these parallels between Alice and Jane going to the wall before. And remember earlier that Mel tells John it's a girl in grey, as in definitely wearing grey and not eye colour or anything else and that she's fleeing from her marriage. So with the fleeing from a marriage, there's yet another commonality and parallel between Alice and Jane. Right, and what's interesting is that after fake Arya escapes Ramsay, she's wearing grey. So she fits the grey girl on a dying horse, fleeing her marriage, much better than Alice does. Furthermore, George lets us know she's wearing grey in a very roundabout way. You have to look hard to figure it out. Yeah, he's almost disguised this, which seems quite suspicious to us. When Jane escapes Winterfell, she's naked until Squirrel's clothes are given to her. And here's the quote. With Rowan's help, Theon got Jane Poole into Squirrel's clothes. Yeah, you can kind of blink and miss this. So from the quote, we're not told that Squirrel's clothes are actually grey, just that Jane Poole has been put into them. But if we go back a little bit, we can see that Squirrel's clothes are indeed grey. It says, Abel's washermen were clad as serving girls in layers of drab grey rough spun. So we have, potentially, a girl in grey on a dying horse, fleeing from a marriage, coming to the wall, and posing as Arya, whom Mel was looking for. Jane fits Mel's visions perfectly. And Mel mentions that the grey girl crumbles, and in the Winds of Winter preview chapter, and this next sentence may be a spoiler for some, we discover that Jane's nose is starting to fall off from frostbite. Right, so Jane really fits this reading so well, better even than Alice Karstark. And the connotation of Mel's potential misinterpretation here might be what's significant. Mel mistaking Alice for Aya is really when John stops trusting the Red Woman. 
He confronts her, and he's really disappointed that this girl isn't anything to do with Aya. And she then warns him that he's in danger and he needs to keep his wolf beside him. Because of Mel's mistake with Alice, John shrugs off her advice straight away. And in the end, not keeping his wolf beside him seals his unfortunate fate. So, had fake Aya showed at the wall, John might have been a bit more understanding of Mel's mistake and not been so dismissive with her advice. He might have kept his wolf beside him and he might have fared better during the attack. So that would be the significance. If Alice wasn't the grey girl after all, John would have trusted Mel a whole lot more, we think, and perhaps not suffered the fate that he did. So there's two fresh interpretations of Mel's visions that we think she might have got wrong. And finally, we're looking at Mel and her days as a slave that she sees in this vision. Strange voices called to her from days long past. Melanie, she heard a woman cry. A man's voice called, Lot 7. Yeah, this seems like it could be her mother visiting her. The Lot 7 seems like a slaver's lot. Yeah, remember Tyrion is sold in a lot. Lot 97. Yes, he is. And it's so sad to learn this about Mel. Clearly some horrific things have happened to her early on in her life. This slaver's lot seems to be how she ended up as a red priestess. Yeah, later she thinks, back when she was still half a child, a slave girl bound for life to the Great Red Temple. Yeah, and so we've been thinking about which temple this is that Mel came from, and might still be bound to. Many assume that it's Philantis, as we see it, and we know it's specifically a Great Red Temple. But a few things might not quite add up there. First of all, we don't see the Flaming Heart sigil when we see Bonero and co. It seems exclusive to Mel and nowhere to be seen in Volantis. Next, Mel is stated as being the best reader of flames in her order. And when we see Makoro, who's from Volantis, he's far, far more accurate than Mel with the flames. There's no question. So it's likely that Mel isn't from Makoro's order in Volantis. And Mel isn't mentioned by Bonero. And furthermore, she's the only red priest looking for Azor High in Westeros. Bonero is sending people to Danny. It just seems like she might be from another great red temple. Right, a different place we're looking for. And the only other red temple described as great is in Lys. And it's mentioned only once, and it's in passing by Salador San. The red priests have a great temple on Lys, he said. So this might be it. Mel might have been bound for life to the great temple on Lys before studying in Ashai. And Lys, if you remember from earlier, is where Shara Seastar's family are from. So it might fit nicely with Yoke Boy's theory that Shara fled to Lys with baby Mel. Okay, there's lots, lots more to look at with these visions, but not today. Because that's the end of our analysis and theorizing about Melisandre of Ashai. One day, Melisandre prayed she would not sleep at all. One day, she would be free of dreams. Melanie, she thought, Lot 7. Melanie, she thought, Lot 7. So, thanks for listening. That's it for Melisandre for now. We hope we've provided some ideas as to why Mel might be George's most misunderstood character. And you can find us at RadioWesteros.com. From there, you can subscribe and reach all of our social media, Facebook, Tumblr, Twitter. Come by and say hi. And we just wanted to say thanks for all the feedback and interest. It's very much appreciated. Yeah, thank you very much if you've reblogged, liked, or linked to us. It does make a difference. 
And next time, we're going to take a tangent from looking at individual characters and look at the most famous theory in the Song of Ice and Fire universe. We'll be looking at RLJ. Rhaegar plus Lyanna equals John. And this theory is so well trodden, we're going to be bringing in some experts to help us present and discuss the theory, a guest and a researcher. We wanted to cover this theory, but in a way that's interesting for you listeners. Right, so we have a poster we respect very much called Egrain joining us. And we're going to take a look at the Night of the Laughing Tree, the Tower of Joy and Blue Roses and a lot more. As always, we'll try and include some of our own new ideas into the episode. So there'll hopefully be some new insights into this old RLJ theory along the way. And finally, credit where credit is due. Thanks to George R.R. R. Martin for bringing so many people together with his writing. Thanks again to Nine Inch Nails for allowing us to remix elements of their music. And to John Analio for the George R.R. R. Martin is Not Your Bitch song. And to M. Palele for the Eastern guitar texture that we used. Yes, licensing, credits and links are all in the MP3 tag and on our website. RadioWestros.com, our central hub. So we'll be back next time with an RLJ episode. Join us today during the Jeep Celebration event. Right now, get 20% below MSRP for an average of 15178 under MSRP on the purchase of a 2023 Jeep Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe or Summit 4xe. Not compatible with lease offers or with any other consumer incentive offers. 15,178 average based on 20% below average MSRP from all 2023 Grand Cherokee Overland 4xE and Summit 4xE models and dealer stock. Residency restrictions apply. Take retail delivery from dealer stock by 4-1. Jeep is a registered trademark. We hope you'll join us. Bye. Bye.